Dear Lord, thanks so much for this day, and thanks for your goodness and for your word, and we just ask now, Lord, that you would guide us, that you would be our teacher, that you would lead us and direct us according to your word, and Lord, help us to uh, just glean from your word what you would have for us today, and Lord, maybe different for different ones of us, but Lord, we, we know that your spirit guides us into all truth. And so we ask that you would do that work in our hearts this morning for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your way to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I'd like to remind us uh, that last week, and I think this is probably a good good, good remind us uh, if you were here or even if you, or if you weren't here. Um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, and, and I forget which of the other Gospels, but in my mind I go to Matthew 13, talks about the parable of the sower. Uh, it's more properly the parable of the soils. And it's familiar to many of us, uh, but he said, you know, a sower went out to sow, and he says the seed is, the, is representative of the Word of God. Jesus himself gives us the, the commentary on it there at the latter part of Matthew 13. And he says... The seed is the word of God, and the soil is representative of the hearts of human beings. And he, he basically described four types of soil. And this is interesting because in my mind, as a, as, as a guy that's, um, well, just sort of, I feel like I'm uh, in a place where I'm always trying to sow the word. We all, we all should be trying to do that. But in my experience, I feel like, you know what? I think I've seen these four types of hearts uh, over the years. And the first type is the type that the soil that's by the wayside. It's been trampled down. It's real hard. And any gardeners know uh, the worst thing you can do uh, to, uh, to your soil is to step on it, right? I did that once in our garden uh, that I can remember that my wife saw. And I didn't do it again. You don't step on the garden, right? You step on the path. That's why we have paths in the garden. This part where we sow, this part where we have paths, and you can step on the path, and it'll be rock hard, okay? You can tramp it down as, as hard as you can. That's hard soil. It's the hard-hearted person, and you know that person. Hey, did you know Jesus died for you? Don't want to hear it. And there's usually various reasons for that, but the end result is it's a hard heart. And so that's that person. There's a second type of person that Jesus described as the soil that's kind of full of rocks, right? Well, do you, do you want rocks in your, in your garden? No, unless it's a rock garden. But if you're planting stuff, you don't want rocks, okay? And he says that type of soil is the kind of, it's kind of like the person that receives the word and said, oh, that's awesome, but because they have no depth, they don't remain. They don't stick with it. They, you know, they're all excited about the Lord for a brief period of time, and then within a few months or whatever, you don't hear from them again, right? And then there's the third type of person that is kind of the soil is full of thorns and other stuff, and he describes that as the kind of person that is, um, receives the word, but gets distracted by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, and he says it chokes out the fruitfulness of that of this, that soil. And then obviously there's a fourth kind of soil that's fruitful and bears fruit and is good soil and is and is you know got all the weeds removed and it's got all the rocks removed and it's no longer hard and and all of that. And that soil is good, fertile ground that bears fruit. And we've talked about this, and I and I. I belabored a little bit because I want us to kind of, I want this to anchor in our hearts, honestly, because this is, to me, this is foundational. Jesus even said, hey, if you don't understand this parable, how can you understand any of the parables? Jesus described this as the foundational parable of his teachings. And basically, it's this. The person says, no, not interested. Is that person saved or lost, as we would describe in our Christian vernacular? we'd probably call that person lost. The person that's 
bears fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Would we call that person saved or lost? Saved. All right? Those are both pretty straightforward. That second category is the topic of theological debate for centuries. <laughs> right? You know that guy that came and he came forward, he seemed genuine, he, you know, we sang just as I am and he came, he came up and he, you know, prayed the sinner's prayer and, and asked Jesus to forgive him of his sins and, and all of that and he was excited and he was praising the Lord and he was on the front row of church, no offense, he was on the front row of church for the next four Sundays and then we don't know what happened to him. That's the guy in the shallow soil he had no foundation right and theologians debate forever does that guy go to heaven or not what's the right answer I'm not gonna answer it it's up to God it's up to God by the way it's not my decision or evaluation as to who is saved or not right I'm just talking theologically okay so that was a, you know, we'll leave that one to God. This other one, you know, he comes and he came forward when we sang Just As I Am and he prayed the sinner's prayer and he's all that, but, you know, he's just all the time, like, distracted by stuff, by uh, life's drama, by trying to get an upper hand, by trying to, you know, whatever it is that's, that he's focused on and it's just not the Lord. Does that guy go to heaven? It's up to God. It's up to God. And let me just say, there are way too many theological debates where man tries to move into God's lane and man should just do well to stay in his own lane. And I think James... The book of James is written for the fourth type of soil, the fertile, healthy, mature soil. And it's almost like James ignores those middle two groups. Obviously, James is not preaching to the guy that doesn't want to be preached to, okay? He's not forcing himself on that. So he's not preaching to that guy. But he's also kind of ignoring these other two groups because as I mentioned last week, you know, I went through a time in my life where I was probably the, well, I was probably some combination of the rocky soil and the, and the thorny soil. And, uh, but the bottom line is I was not fruitful by any stretch of the imagination. I was living all about my life and my fun and my agenda and my this and my that, right? That's what I was all about. And so, you know, all that to say, I didn't like, I remember in those days, I remember uh, going to college with a Bible that my mom gave me, and I remember thinking, I just don't like reading the book of James. I just don't like it. So let me just tell you this. If you're trying to like squeak by spiritually in life, and I'm not suggesting anybody is, I'm just talking because we're reading the book of James. If you're trying to squeak by spiritually in life, let me just encourage you, James is a challenging book. And by the way, if you're a gardener, right? All metaphors lead back to gardening, right? Like all roads lead to Rome, all metaphors go back to gardening, okay? If you're a gardener and you got rocky soil, guess what? Is there anything that says those rocks are permanent and cannot be removed? This spring, we're probably going to go out to our garden. You know what we're going to pull? Weeds. Is there anything that says you can't pull the weeds in your heart? Get the weeds out, right? I've had to pull weeds out. I pull weeds out all the time, spiritually speaking. Oh, you know, and oftentimes there are weeds that I don't see that thankfully God surrounds me with people that show them to me sometimes. Sometimes the Lord shows me. Sometimes the Lord's people show me right? Oh, there's a weed. You need to pull that one out, right? And in so doing, we have the capacity within, I mean, God is sovereign, okay? But within our realm of human responsibility, 
we have the capacity to throw out some rocks and pull out some weeds in the soil of our hearts. And as we do that, and as I've done that in my own life, guess what? I love the book of James. I love the book of James. It is just so down-to-earth, practical, instructional, inspirational. It's great for self-evaluation. And so I say bring it on. What do you guys say? That's what I thought. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Oh, I love this. I mean, he just does not. James is, it's kind of like reading the book of Mark, right? It's like, zinger, 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 zinger. It's like, there's no like, okay, wait a minute. It just kind of warmed me up a little bit, right? Uh, He's like, you know what? Don't hold the faith of our Lord with partiality. Now, what he's doing is he's introducing here this idea that our faith plays out Our faith with God is a relationship, but it plays out oftentimes in how we relate to one another. And we would say that's, yeah, that's pretty much how life works, right? And I love, if you think about it, they ask Jesus, what's the great commandment? What's the greatest commandment? What did he say? He said, number one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a, that's, I, we think of that as a, as a vertical relationship. I love the Lord, right? I love praising the Lord. When we get to heaven, uh, I don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but there's going to be, you know, somehow we're going to eternally sing praises to the Lord. We see that in the, in the throne room description in Revelation. And I love the Lord. I, re, I worship the Lord. I'm thankful for what he's done for me. I'm so thankful that Jesus died on a cross to pay the price for my sin that I deserved. I deserve to hang on a cross, but Jesus did it for me instead. I'm so thankful for that. But you know, if I sit around and as far as my earthly existence and just kind of keep that to myself, that's frankly a little bit selfish. It's kind of like, you know, what somebody said, you know, it's like when a beggar discovers gold, he wants to share that with the other beggars, right? And so it's like, I, I, if I have recognized all that God has done for me, I just should naturally want to share that with others. So Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, he said, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so my relationship with God should very directly impact my relationship with others. And, how, and, and uh, so much so that you can make a case, you can't make a religion or a law out of it, but you could at least make a case that how I treat others is a reflection of my relationship with the Lord. Catch that now, please. How I treat others is a reflection of my relationship with the Lord. I've seen over the years, not, not, not anybody here or anything, even recently, honestly, but I remember years ago. Well, when we lived in Indianapolis, I remember this. I remember as a, as a doctor, I would have people come into my office, right? And word got out I'm a Christian doctor, right? Word got out. Is it word got out here that I'm a Christian doctor? Word's out. One of you guys leaked it. But I remember in those days, every pastor in town wants a Christian doctor. So I had all these, Christi- I had all these pastor patients. Boy, they were difficult. They were so difficult. Now, I've got a few here in town, by the way, and none of them are difficult, I'm pleased to say. But the ones in Indianapolis, I remember three or four, I remember one guy, 
He always came in. He was always mad about something. He was always kind of a jerk to my nurses, who, by the way, weren't Christians. And I'm trying to explain to them, like, Jesus loves you. Well, like, that guy's Jesus. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed a little bit to say, yeah, that guy's Jesus. But, and then I have to unpack that guy's behavior, right? Listen, I hope you don't have to unpack my behavior in your evangelism. So, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And those two are very very intertwined. That's the point. He says, hey, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's this part, with partiality. That's, he's going to talk about how we interact with one another. All right? And I love, again, I love James. James is super practical. He says, for example, if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should come also in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, Oh, you sit here in a good place. And to the poor man, you sit behind the pole over there. Doesn't say that. See, because James's church didn't have a pole, but we have a pole right here. So actually, we have a well-dressed man behind the pole. So this should have stopped. He says, to the man in fine clothes and gold and all that, you say, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, oh, you stand here or sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is a great practical example, is it not? And I love that it's sort of timeless, really. I mean, you watch an old movie. Are there class distinctions in those, oh, what's her name? Jane Austen? Are there class distinction in those Jane Austen movies? Yeah. There's the rich and the poor. We watched a movie last night. There's the rich and the poor. There's always been sort of the rich and the poor. There's always like some, some categorization of human beings in a society. And honestly, I wish it weren't so. I think James wishes it weren't so. But that's just the reality. The ancient world had lots of class, class distinctions. People were always wanting to improve somehow their social standing or if they were in a social standing that they thought was um, at a certain level, they wanted to preserve that. And he's just given the example, you know, if that's the case in your church, and some rich guy, we'll say the rich guy has some favorable social standing. Some rich guy walks in, and you show partiality to the rich guy over the guy that uh, doesn't present himself as rich, then shame on you. Why would anybody in church show partiality to the rich guy? Or not even in church. Why do people show partiality to the rich guy? Because it's somehow, it's something, it's in some way, if, I, if you're a rich person and I'm showing partiality to you, if I buy into all this and, and I'm showing partiality to you, am I doing it because I love you like extra more than I love that guy? No, I'm doing it because I love who? Me. And if I show partiality to the rich guy, I might be able to get some benefit back, whether it be like, Literally, like, I'll get some of his wealth, or by association, I'll get some of his social status, and thus we have sort of social climbing, right? Raise your hand if you love that. You would admit it, right? Good. We shouldn't love it. James tells us not to love it. Honestly, the only reason to show partiality is because you think it might be uh, something that benefits you. I believe with all my heart, the bottom line is we need to see human beings the way God does. Who did Jesus die for? Rich people? Smart people? People that have reached some sort of class distinction? 
No. We all know that, right? We know that between us and God. We should all act like that, right? And again, I'm not saying that we don't. Honestly, I, I love, one of the things I love about this fellowship is I, I believe that um, we're a great blend of people. And I, and I believe that you guys are particularly um, adept at not playing that game. I've been in churches where people play that game. And it's honestly pretty obvious. And so um, we need to see people the way God does. Jesus Christ died for everybody. Jesus Christ died for everybody. And you know, whenever we read the Bible, I love this, whenever we read the Bible, keep in mind we're always getting sort of two layers, I think, well, at least two layers. We're getting the lesson that the Bible is teaching us in this moment, in this context. We're also learning the heart and character of God, are we not? This is one of the things I love about reading the whole Bible. As I read the whole Bible, I see the heart and character of God. If I just read a piece of God, a piece of the Bible, I might get a piece or the a, a piece of God's nature, right? If you if you get to know me for five minutes, do you really know me? Well, I hope you catch me on a good day. What if you caught me on a bad day? Or what if you caught me, you know, whatever, irritated about something? You've never done that. So you don't know, right? But see, we all have, there's, there's pieces of our, of our nature. And how much more so there are aspects of, of God. There are attributes of God the Bible talks about. And so when we read the Bible, keep in mind now, we're learning the lessons of the Bible, the text itself, but we're also learning the character of God. And I hope we get that the character of God is he does not show partiality. And so we should not show partiality. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Familiar verse when, when uh, Samuel went to uh, member to Jesse's house to find the next king, right? And he looks at the first, the oldest brother, and he's like, oh, surely that, that's the one. That guy's, that, you know, that guy's uh, looks like a rock star. And uh, God says, you know, that's not him. God says, uh, for the Lord looks not, the Lord does not look, does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And let me just say this, we need to be very careful. And again, I know I'm preaching to the choir, and, but we need to be reminded of this. We need to be very careful not to look at wealth, skin color, education, age, or any other means by which people divide one another. That's what it means to be, become judges with evil thoughts, he says. Now let me get a little more practical and a little more um, dicey. Can I get a little more dicey? I've heard a couple of times recently uh, churches talk about who they're targeting, right? Who they're targeting. Now, nobody would say, hey, you know what we're doing? We're having a campaign this week. We're targeting the rich people, right? (laughs) All churches are smart enough not to say that, right? Right? But you know, I've heard lately, a couple, I've heard a couple times, it's not like it's, it's but it, it, it strikes in my head. It says, we're targeting, we're targeting the young people because they're the future. Does that sound noble? Yeah, sounds noble. Silver-haired people. How's that, how, how, do we, how do we roll with that? What does that mean? Oh, I'm not being targeted. Right? We're targeting the young people. I get where they're saying, but can I just say this? We are targeting everybody. As a matter of fact, we don't target. Because I don't want anybody to feel preferentially treated or not treated in this body. And it has nothing to do, it, 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 like, 
you know, nobody will say, hey, we're targeting the rich. But very often, they're targeting somebody. And churches can be very strategic, right? And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being strategic in and of itself. But if it, if it shows partiality, then I think James would say, back up and rethink that. Back up and rethink that. We're targeting, I heard a guy one time say, uh, if you are like, a, if, if you hold up a, like a glass in front of you, or a mirror, or a little piece of, you know, a little piece of glass, and you blow on it like that, right? If the glass fogs up, then you count, right? We're targeting everybody. And I don't ever want anybody to feel untargeted. James would not want, us, want anyone to feel untargeted. Verse 5. Listen, my brother. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom with which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Do not, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? And so, you know, again, he's back to the, to the rich and poor and, uh, example specifically. But he says, you know, if we neglect the poor people, we very much miss the heart of God. And in that day, uh, the churches tended to do that, and so James is calling it out. Recall Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's poor in spirit, right? It's not necessarily uh, financial in and of itself, but the reality is there's a principle that wealth can often, not always, but wealth can often cause people to not see their need for God. And so that's just been an issue throughout history, honestly. A wealthy person uh, doesn't mean a wealthy person can't find the Lord, right? Jesus said it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter, enter into heaven. And Peter says, well, then how can anybody be saved? Well, uh, he says, you know, with God, all things are possible. And so the reality is we're all saved by Jesus. Rich, poor, medium, whatever. We're all saved by the blood of Jesus, and none of us are saved by any human effort. But the reality is uh, that he would say here, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes it's the rich people that have a hard time seeing their need for the Lord. Look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would. And again, this speaks particular. This speaks specifically to the Corinthian church, but I think, again, the principle of the teaching applies today because all Scripture is uh, profitable for, uh, for instruction. But also it shows us the heart of God. First, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that it is written, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So notice this, Paul says to the Corinthian church, you know, not many wise are called, not many mighty, not many, you know, uh, noble according to the flesh, according to the things of this world. And I'll tell you what I've noticed over the years amongst sincere Christians Please get this now. Amongst sincere Christians, there are very few that say, you know, I'm awesome. God was lucky to find me. Most sincere Christians 
in one way or another, they feel some, uh, they wrestle a little bit with, well, I'm not as good as this guy. I, I don't sing as well as Drew. I don't do this as well as somebody else. I can't play the guitar. I can't teach. I can't do this. They, people often give themselves a grade that is uh, honestly a downgrade for some perceived reason. Now, you may or may not be that way. Oh, I'm shy. Or I'm, you know, everybody else is, you know, normal. But I'm not normal because of whatever. Is that fair? Okay. You can just, you can nod quietly, right? Because we're not going to call out what your, what your thing is. Okay. But I think I've noticed over the years, we all kind of feel that way in a little bit, in, in a sense. When I was in school... I'll, I'll just lay it to rest for y'all, right? Because I was the guy, right? You think that you're the one? You're, actually, you're wrong. I was the one. I remember in school, a sophomore in high school, Mr. Johnson, English teacher. I'm not bitter, but I remember. <laughs> when I was in school, I was overweight and I had red hair. And when Mr. Johnson found out that I was also left-handed, he looked at me in front of the whole class and he said, wow, you got it all. <laughs> I'm like, that's not good, right? <laughs> wow, you got it all. I was overweight, red-headed, and left-handed, right? That was the trifecta of being cursed, right? And honestly, I, 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 I get it. I grew up like that. We all kind of have that a little bit, right? And so let's just remember that. And I think it's probably healthy to remember that, you know what, everybody feels that way a little bit. So the worst thing we could do is start dividing people up about, for some, some man-made arbitrary categorization of people. Every one of us is a human being whose value is determined by the fact that Jesus died for you. Every one of us his value is determined by the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. Don't ever lose sight of that. And don't ever let anybody take that away. Or don't ever let anybody categorize you otherwise. Verse 8, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. And so Jesus goes back to this second commandment, or uh, James goes back to Jesus' second commandment. He says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And remember when Jesus told us that, right? Jesus went on, remember that, what was the follow-up question they asked him? Okay, well, who's my neighbor? Right? And Jesus went on to give the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Remember, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Talking about categorization of people. The Jewish people were religiously pompous. The Samaritans were like the outliers of all outliers. They were, they were scum. And so socially, the Samaritans were scum. And Jesus gives this beautiful parable about uh, the Samaritan that rescues the, uh, the Jewish man that has been almost beat to death. And by the way, the Jewish religious leaders passed by, right, before the Samaritan uh, came to that man. And so Jesus explained very, very graphically and very practically, okay, now who is my neighbor? When he talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. He goes on, he says, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who, he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Now, this is interesting. So he's kind of transgress. He's trying to kind of transitioning now from, okay, 
You guys, you guys need to not divide people amongst rich and poor. Now he's taking it one step further. Okay, while you're at it, don't divide people according to religious superiority and inferiority. Is that relevant? Anybody ever, okay, so let's say you don't like being looked down upon by somebody that's richer than you, whatever that means. Do you like being condescended by a religious person, right? Like, you're not as religious as I am, and uh, usually it's measured by some ridiculous parameter anyway. But you're not as religious as I am, and so therefore I'm kind of looking down on you because maybe you commit a certain sin that's, you know, one of the biggies, right? How do you like that feeling? You don't. You don't. And so he goes on here. He says, you know, this is another dangerous kind of partiality, the partiality of self-righteousness. And, and James clarifies it, says, by the way, you that are self-righteous, if you stumble at one point of the law, you're guilty of all. So you might say, yeah, the murderer, whoa, that guy, that guy's lost. But, you know, if I'm guilty of something else, he says, I'm guilty of all. I'm, I've become a transgressor of the law. What's the point? The point is, none of us are saved by any works, right, in and of themselves. We're going to talk about that in a minute. We're not saved by works. And so, my sin doesn't separate me from, I mean, your sin doesn't separate you from God any more than my sin separates me from God. And so, therefore, I have no reason ever, ever, ever to be religiously pompous to anybody else. Because you know what I am? Since I'm a guy that the glass fogs when I breathe on it, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Just like you are. I'm a sinner saved by grace. God doesn't make, just like God doesn't make a distinction, who, you know, he, he didn't only die for the rich, he also didn't only die for the self-righteous, right? God didn't make a distinction uh, of which sins he died for and which sins he didn't. But in the church, in the body of Christ, oftentimes, people can get a, get a perception like, well, God died for that sin, but he didn't die for this one, right? And we need to know that um, Jesus died for all sin. So keep in mind, we're talking about who we welcome into the fellowship, right? So if you're a sinner and you come in here, Should we welcome you? Right? If you're a sinner and you come in here, should we welcome you? Yeah. Should we distinguish, like, what kind of sin we're talking about first before we let you in? Well, to be fair, you know, we have to protect it. You know, if your sin is uh, murder, right, and you come in with a gun, we kind of have to have a talk. Right? Because we've got to protect one another. Okay? But apart from that, you know, a, a person that comes in that has a certain sin or whatever, we don't, we don't, we don't grade sin. We don't grade sin in terms of who we bring into the fellowship, who we welcome into the fellowship. But... Do we all, let me just say this. If a person comes in and doesn't want to come to grips with their sin, that poses a different issue. Does that make sense? And sometimes we can be a little bit, um, we just need to be a little bit careful, honestly. We need to welcome everybody. Come as you are. We want people to come as you are. But we don't want anybody, including myself, to stay as you are. We don't want anybody, including myself, to stay as you are. Right? Romans chapter 12 says, Do not be conformed to this, to this world, but be transformed. Transformed 
by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I need to be continually transformed all the time to be more Christ-like. I should be more Christ-like next week than I was last week. Ideally. I should be more Christ-like next month than I was last month. I should be more Christ-like next year than I am today. And so in order to do that, I need to be willing to change today. So I, am, I need to not demand that I be affirmed to remain as I am today. Does that make sense? It's a little dicey. But the other side of that is I cannot be self-righteous. I am no better than anyone. But I am, I need to be always open to being transformed by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. Verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, I love this. I love this. This is the second time he's referred to the law of liberty. The first time was in uh, one, chapter 1, verse 25. He said, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This one will be blessed in what he does. The reality is, and I had a hard time. You remember when I said I didn't like the book of James because I wanted to live my own life and do my own thing and, and walk in sin and still go to heaven? Yeah, well, we're not talking about that person. We're talking about now the person that wants to grow, that wants to be uh, conformed into the image of Christ. That person needs to regard the law of liberty, the, the, the word of God, as the law of liberty. I now have the freedom, because I'm saved by grace, I have the freedom to do what's right. And sometimes we look at the Bible, if we're, if we're the kind of Christian I, I was, sometimes we look at the Bible and say, that's a tight set of rules. That's a, that feels, that, that, all those rules feel restrictive. And they don't let me be me. And I don't like them because I want to be me. But James would tell us, that if we want to grow, and if we want to be more Christ-like, then we need to see the law as the law of liberty, the law that frees us up to live according to the Word. Because we were previously slaves of sin. Our sin, our selfishness. In reality, we get it backwards if we think the Word of God is restrictive. Actually, our slavery, our, our sin is restrictive. If you don't believe me, ask any drug addict. Ask any drug addict. Does that, does that drug make you feel free? Or are you a slave to it? Right? And that's just, I mean, that's just, that's just one example. That's just one example. And our hearts should break for folks that are enslaved by their sin. And only God's word and God's spirit can set them free. That's the reality. John chapter 8 verse 31 says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth shall make you free. You know, if God created me, then God knows what's best for me. If God created me, he created the world, he created everything, then he knows what's best for me. And he's given me a how-to manual to live accordingly. And whenever I try to deviate from that, I find myself less free. So it's appropriate that James refers to this as the law of liberty. It's a great description. He says first, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So again, back to the self-righteous uh, person. If we truly understand the mercy that God has shown us by not getting 
the punishment we deserve, then we should extend that mercy to others regardless of what category of sin we find them in. And I love this statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. We can judge one another according to social status. We can judge one another according to whatever that thing is that you feel inferior about. We can judge one another according to uh, our sin and your sin. We can do all of that, but the reality is mercy triumphs over judgment. It's a great statement. He said, what does it profit, my brother? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? So he's now going to transition again a little bit. This is sort of a logical extension of the first 13 verses, and that is uh, the way we live must be an extension of what we believe, right? And so just like we said, we have a relationship with God, and that should impact how how we... treat others, how we uh, regard others. Well, the same thing here. He says, you know, if you have faith with God, you, you got to have the works that go along with it. There's a guy, Richard Bennett, wrote a book year, uh, years ago and, uh, called Food for Faith. And he said, you know, our faith needs to go from our mind to impact our hearts. And it goes from our hearts to impact our hands, right? Our minds, I read God's word. I do all I can to understand God's word and how it relates to me, and that should impact my heart. That should impact really like, you know, not just my, you know, Valentine's Day heart, right? Like, should I get a warm fuzzy about God? Yeah, I should get a warm fuzzy about God, but the reality is it should affect who I am. Who I am, what I'm passionate about. And that should then affect what I do, right? My head to my heart to my hands. And so it's a great picture that he gave. They're all tied together. And so, uh, you know, as we have a faith in God, it should affect how we treat others and how we um, deal with others. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? So you say, I love God. I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then I come across somebody that's like, you know, the Good Samaritan came across. And I'm like, good luck to you, buddy. It's a bummer. It's a bummer to be you. But it is what it is right? Do we really have the love of God if we do that? Now, we can take that and make a guilt trip out of it, right? And say, you know, you got to meet the needs of everybody, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about as God would direct, right? God gives us those opportunities to bless one another, to encourage one another, to minister to one another, because we're all full-time ministers, then we all have opportunity. God, uh, believe me, if you ask God, if you pray to God sincerely, Lord, Please make me, uh, give me a heart of a full-time minister. Help me, help me to realize that everything I do is really a part of the life that you've given me, and therefore everything I do really as a Christian person should be thought of as ministry, right? And I'm therefore a full-time minister just as any other, you know, person, right? If you pray that way, guess what? God's going to give you opportunity to bless, one, bless somebody. God will give you that opportunity to minister. He said, this also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, verse 17. So you could say, yeah, I believe, but I don't have the works that go along with that. Then do I really have an authentic belief? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. He's saying, these two are tied together, right? If we do good things just because we want to be good, right, Let's say I'm a, let's say I'm a, uh, uh, it's so hard to not use politically charged phrases. Let's say I want to just do good for social justice just for the sake of doing good for social justice because I want to feel good about myself, Right? Sooner or later, my selfish motive, if if that's the only reason, sooner or later, my selfish motives are going to come to light, right? 
I'm doing that because I want, you know, I'm going to help Mrs. Jones because I want her to think I'm awesome and say, oh, you're awesome. There's a lot of good. There's a lot of good works that get done in this world and in churches, honestly, for the motivation of I want you to say I'm awesome. Right? We should be delivered from that. On the other hand, there's the person that says, oh, yeah, I have faith. Oh, I have faith. I have faith. I love the Lord. I have faith. And Mrs. Jones is like down on the ground, can't get up, needs help. And I walk right past and ignore her. Then I've also misfired, right? So there's both sides of it, right? And what we should have, we should have a genuine faith where we know that God loves us, Jesus died for us, and we live in response to that, and we are so thankful. We know that we could never save ourselves. We know that we're living according to the Word, and that's the perfect law of liberty, and we know that that's going to affect how we live our lives and how we interact with others. We know that those things go hand in hand, and we embrace that, right? That's, that's what James would say is good instruction for the mature Christian is that we live, we recognize both. We love God, we love our neighbors ourselves, and we live accordingly. And so we have, yes, we have works. Yes, our works are just a manifestation of our faith. If we just say we have faith, but we don't have any works that go along with it, then our faith is likely not genuine. Verse 19, he goes on, you believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You know, this was that part, this was that verse I really didn't like when I was in college. I really didn't like this. You know, because my Bible, my Bible had John 3.16 in it. Does your Bible have John 3.16 in it? My Bible that I took to college, it had John 3.16 in it. Oh, for God so loved the world, that's me, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him, oh, I believe in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, I want that. Sign me up for everlasting life. I'll take everlasting life for 100. Right? And I just, you know, because I believe in him. And I want to live my own life. I believe in him. Right? And then, my, But my Bible also had that verse I couldn't stand. It says, you believe there's one God? Oh, yes, I did. Oh, that's good. So do the demons. Right? What's his point? Belief, the word believe in John 3.16 is not just like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I've gone through the mental exercise in my head, and yeah, I believe that uh, God is who he said he was. That's not just the mental exercise in your head. It's a life transformation. Believe means to, to own it, right? I believe it in my head, and it affects who I am and how I live. I believe it that sort of a way, right? Sorry for the analogy. In case, you know, there's always somebody that's not heard it, right? If I believe a tornado's coming, I'm going to get out of here, right? I'll probably say that every week. If I believe a tornado's coming, if I say a tornado's coming and I believe that it's coming, and it's going to touch down here, I'm out of here. Right? And you would be too. Right? Our belief, if it doesn't have a life that, that coincides with that, then our belief is not real. So, yeah, if you believe uh, that, you know, there's just one God, and, and you know, God is the God who he said, is, he said he is, and that's it, and it doesn't affect your life, well, the demons also believe, and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, what faith without works, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Now, Sometimes we lose a little bit, you've heard me say before, sometimes if a story is so familiar to us, and this story is familiar to many of us, uh, 
Sometimes the story is so familiar to us, we lose this, the impact of it, okay? But, so catch this. We won't go through all the history just for the sake of time. But God told Abraham, in you, that is in your descendants, all the world, all of history shall be blessed. And basically, Abraham understood that to mean the Messiah is coming from, from my line, Right? And then, you know, a few hiccups and here and there and blah, 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 blah. And then Isaac is born to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. And God said, in Isaac, that seed, that, that, that genetic line is going to go from you through Isaac to ultimately reach the Messiah. And Abraham knew that that was a to say it's a big deal is an understatement, right? The Messiah is going to come from, from my descendants through the line of Isaac. God was very clear with Abraham about that. Then you fast forward a few years, you know, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, and, you know, they're just chumming along just fine. And, you know, one day, you know, like maybe when you have kids, you know, you, one day they may grow up and get married and have kids of their own, and, you know, the line will go on. And that's kind of how Abraham and Sarah thought. And, you know, Isaac's not married yet. And, you know, God says, all right, I want you to take Isaac up on the top of Mount Moriah. Isaac would be an adult by this time, strong enough to fight back, right? Like adult kids can take their parents. Sort of. Right? Isaac is old enough to fight back. He's not married yet. He has no descendants. God has told Abraham through the line of Isaac is going to be the Messiah. And God says, I want you to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and I want you to kill him as a sacrifice to me to, dead, to test your dedication to me. How would you respond to that? God, you're sending me mixed signals. I don't get it. You know what Abraham said? Yes, sir. All right. And honestly, in my life, I don't know about your life. In my life, I find it much easier to follow God when it totally makes sense. When he's when he's operating according to what I think works right. That, that work, this, this is how we ought to do it, God. You know, when God says to do it according to how I think it ought to work out, I'm pretty agreeable. But how agreeable am I when God says something that seems either impossible or maybe contradictory to something else he sees, he said or done or something like that, and I don't fully understand it, and how is this going to work out, and I just play this how is it going to work out thing in my head, and what if, and what about this person, and how is that situation, and what's going on, and, you, and it all seems, and I find myself in this big complicated dialogue with God. You ever do that? You can't read that in, in the Genesis account with Abraham. God says, I want you to go kill Isaac. All right. And Abraham goes up, and he's going, up the, he's going up the mountain, and they get to a certain point on the mountain. The servants are with him, and, God, and Abraham says to the servants, hey, you guys wait here. We're going to go farther up, and he says, we will come back. We will come back. Abraham, in his mind, he didn't know how God was going to do it, but he knew that somehow he and Isaac were going to come back. Why? Because he had faith of what God had previously said, in Isaac, your seed shall be blessed. Right? Are we okay living like that? That's not easy, is it? That's not easy. He says, James says, do you see that faith was working together with Abraham, with his works, and by works his faith was made perfect, it was made complete. 
And the scripture says, the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God. Not like my John 3.16 when I was in college kind of a believe God, but like I'm going to walk up the mountain with Isaac kind of a believe God. said Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Abraham was called the friend of God partly because he trusted God. Now, God is our friend, right? God loves us. Jesus died for us. God is our friend. But I think we can have fellowship with God that's sweeter, that's more intimate, that's more personal. When we choose to just obey God at his word, whether we understand it or whether we don't. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And so he's saying Abraham's works validated the sincerity of his faith. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So another story, we won't belabor it, but Rahab was a, uh, a harlot who lived on the wall of Jericho. Her house was literally a part of the wall of Jericho. She hears these Israelites are coming. The, she uh, recognizes that their God has been miraculous by everything she heard about them coming out of Egypt and killing some of the kings on the other side of the Jordan River. And uh, she very much believes in the God of the Jews. And she welcomes the, the messengers. And she takes great risk to herself by her own people from Jericho by uh, receiving those messengers. And so, in, in, in a sense, also, her faith was justified by what she did. It was, it was validated. It was, it was exemplified. It was carried out by the works that she did. He says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So, you know, a human body that's, that's dead lacks life, right? And our faith, if it's just, you know, me and God and not anything I do on earth or not anything I do to, as an expression of my gratitude to God or anything like that, it's dead. It's dead just like a human corpse. So, we need to be careful to see others the way God does and extend grace and mercy the same way God does. We need to extend grace and mercy to others the same way God does. And as we do that, we realize that our faith must be alive. It goes from our head to our heart to our hands. And as we do that, honestly, can I say this? Particularly in our, I believe in our culture today, I think, maybe like never before, we have a tremendous opportunity before us to live according to these principles of James chapter 2. I think we have a tremendous opportunity before us. Because as the world goes crazy, they're looking for authenticity amongst Christians. They may not, they may not even be able to say it that way, but deep down, I believe the world is looking for authenticity amongst Christians. And can I tell you this? You know what they find too often? What they find too often is they, they may try to, what they find too often is churches that categorize people. I'll just say it that way. Churches that categorize people and give people a grade. And usually it's a grade that makes all of them feel like their grade is an F. That's just the world we live in. Because I hear people's reports of these things. And as I watch and listen and talk to people that need the Lord, I believe with all my heart, they're not looking for us to be just like them, right? We're not trying to play their, play their song. We're just trying to be an authentic, 
version, an authentic, humble, non-judgmental, and yet authentic, non-self-righteous child of God. And so if we are collectively a bunch of those people, I truly believe, and I, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this right now. As I look at our community, I'm pretty passionate. They're hungry for authenticity. They don't want to come in and learn my religious handshake. They don't want to come in and figure out what our grading scale is. Who are we targeting? They just want to, they just want a place to heal up. Heal up from the world, maybe heal up from another from, you know, their their religious experience. Heal up from something. But they're looking for real Christianity. And as we live it, we have, a, I believe, a tremendous opportunity to not, you know, just bring people in for our sake because it makes us feel good about ourselves, but to truly, sincerely minister to people for whom Christ died. What a privilege. You know, at the end of your life, what do you want to say about it? He was rich. He was a model of good behavior. No. You want to say, he was a sincere, he or she, was a sincere believer in Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, and lived accordingly with no pretense. You know what? That'd be a pretty good funeral. Right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you give us all that pertains to life and godliness. And Lord, thank you that you give us these such straightforward instruction from your word, from the heart of James reflecting the heart of you. Lord, that tells us, reminds us what an opportunity we have to encourage people, to minister to people that have need, minister to people that have been beat up by the world or beat up by religion. So Lord, help us to live accordingly. Help us to live like we recognize that. Help us to live like we have an authentic relationship with you that is manifested by what we say and what we do. And Lord, help, it, help us to do it all for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name. Amen. We have an awesome, awesome week.